Amen. Thank you, Steve and worship team, for just leading us in such a wonderful time of, uh, of worship. That was awesome. Praise be to God. Well, today we are continuing in what I'm calling, I guess, a character series. Last week we talked about character, and this week we're going to talk about character uh, again. And I think for, uh, really for Grace Church, any church in particular, who wants to get to a healthier place to be able to, to be used by God, uh, to fulfill the mission that, that God has for us, I think we've got to strive to be people of character, people who are striving towards godliness. Uh, why? Again, because like we said last week, God can use anyone in, in this world. He can use people of questionable character, but his preference as he read through scripture seems to be using men and women of, <clears throat> of character. And so we want to strive to be men and women of character so that God can better use us. We can be more um, uh, useful tools and utensils for God to use, vessels for God to use to fulfill his mission in this world which is pointing people to Christ and making disciples of Christ Jesus. And so that's why we want to pursue character as a church. But I want to say this. Um, there may be some people watching this service today, like I said last week, and you're not even a Christian. And you are going to find, if you apply some of these principles and these, these character qualities today to your life, you're, you're probably going to find that, they, well, not probably, you will find that these things are going to help your marriage, they're going to help your family, they're going to help your working relationships, all sorts of relationships in your life. So give it a try. And as you discover that it might work, it might actually help point you to, uh, to a relationship with Christ, actually. So we're going to look at the character qualifi- qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Last week we were in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we looked at the passage that looked at the character qualifications of what we call an elder or an overseer in the church. And we're continuing in that passage, and again, we're just going, um, we're going, continuing in that passage now where Paul is redirecting the character qualities of uh, a deacon. Now, a lot of these character qualities actually look the same, and to a certain extent, they are. Um, but there's a few unique phrases that jump out at me, which, which I'll get to in a bit that I want to I cover. And I want to say this. Um, although we wouldn't call uh, everyone in the church a deacon, just as he wouldn't call everyone in the church we wouldn't call everyone in the church a pastor. In my mind, for today, that's irrelevant because uh, we, I think it's still fair. We, we want to be challenging everybody towards the character qualif- qualifications of a deacon. There's nothing stopping us from doing that. So whether you're a man, a woman, you're uh, old, you're young, you're somewhere in between, regardless of your title, regardless of your status, regardless of what you do at the church, we want everybody to be striving towards these character qualities. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13 is going to be our text this morning. And then there's going to be four unique kind of phrases or words that I'm going to be highlighting that seems to be a little bit unique from our previous passage where we ended last week. Okay, so First Timothy 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 8 to, and then go to 13. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you would have, if you were watching last week, you're going to see a lot of similarities in this passage. Um, 
But before we get into these unique phrases that I want to talk about, first I want to ask the question, who are the deacons in the church? Let's, let's take a second to, to answer that question. Well, the word deacon, the word deacon essentially just means servant, a servant. And so I see a deacon as anyone in the church who's serving in a practical area of ministry. Now, deacons are a little bit different than elders in that uh, elders seem to have a senior ruling, senior leadership, senior perhaps teaching role in the church. And so deacons, you might say, are kind of your next tier level of, of leaders. Um, now, interestingly here, um, churches throughout the years have been a little bit confused about this, but uh, I, I believe that a woman can be classified as a deacon as well. Uh, some Bible translations will translate verse 11 a little bit differently. Uh, our translation today translates this as women. Other translations will translate it as, as, as wife. So some people have made the assumption in the past that, um, you know, you have to have deacon couples serving or whatever. But um, anyways, our translation today, the NIV, the most current NIV version, and my commentary suggests that the phrase should be women. And actually, if you t look at the context of Scripture, if you look at Romans 16, verse 1 to 2, uh, Paul is addressing a woman who is whom he calls a deacon or a deaconess. He says this in Romans 16. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord. And so a deacon is really open to a man or a woman. Uh, so where an elder is reserved, it seems to be just reserved for a man. A, a deacon is open to either man or uh, a woman. And so um, I see a deacon as someone who, it seems to me in scripture that a deacon is kind of sort of a high level ranking manager over practical areas in the church. Uh, so um, we, as a church, we've kind of, um, I think we've specified it a little bit too much in our church, but I think a deacon is really, again, anyone who's serving in a high level managing capacity in the church in, in a whole bunch of various capacities. For example, I think the chair of our trustee committee uh, Chris Nichols, who's presently serving in that role. Uh, I think Chris Nichol, our, the chair of a trustee committee, is a deacon. I think the chair of our nominations committee is essentially a deacon. They're a servant. They're a high-level managing servant. The chair of our missions committee, uh, I think, probably should be classified as a deacon. Our administrative assistant would be, I think, a classified as a deacon. Anyone we might hire on as ministry staff at the church that we wouldn't necessarily call a pastor or an elder probably should be classified as a deacon. Really, a deacon, in my mind, according to Scripture, is any high-capacity servant of the church that might be involved in somehow managing a ministry. And again, regardless of the, the, the title, regardless of the official office or position of deacon, we're really challenging everyone towards the character qualifi qualifications here for a deacon. We want to challenge all of our members towards these character qualifications. So um, there was a lot of similar things that we saw in this passage, but I just want to highlight four phrases that just unique phrases and words that jump out at me in this passage. And the first can be found in verse 8, the first one. It, and it says this, in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, that word sincere jumped out at me, and another translation would translate that to say, uh, this person must have integrity. So let me just say, first of all, what uh, a non-sincere person might look like, uh, or an insincere person might look like. Uh, a sincere person is not someone who's two-faced, who's double-tongued, who's uh, deceptive, who's 
hypocritical. It's not someone who tells two different stories to different people to kind of manipulate the situation and weasel their way out of a, out of a situation. Uh, just to give you an example that comes to mind, uh, last week I, I watched a, a movie called Operation Finale. And it's a movie that's uh, based apparently on a true story where uh, after the Holocaust, there were some German uh, war criminals who had escaped Germany and went to Argentina. And uh, I think it was in the early 1960s, there's a group of Jewish people who went to Argentina to go find a guy by the name of Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi war criminal. And they essentially kidnapped him to take him back to Israel to uh, put him on trial for his war crimes. And in the, in the process in this movie, you see how this, this Nazi war criminal, Adolf Eichmann, is, is telling two different stories. He's trying to manipulate the situation. He's trying to manipulate his interrogators uh, to just kind of manipulate the situation for his own uh, benefit. So that's, that's an extreme example of what we're not looking for. Um, what does a sincere person look like? It's someone who is, uh, contrary to uh, this Nazi war criminal, uh, someone who is honest. Someone who speaks the truth. Someone who is consistent with what they say. Someone who has no problem just sharing the motivations behind what they're doing. Someone who is genuine and sincere. I would go a step further and say this, just kind of look at it from a different angle. I think someone who is sincere is also someone who has a genuine faith in Jesus. So when we look for a deacon in the church, we are looking for someone and as someone who wants to serve in the church, we're looking for someone who has a genuine faith in Jesus, that they are here for the right reasons, that they want to serve God first and foremost. And it's interesting. Some people, I think, want to serve in the church for some, you know, for some personal uh, improper motivations. I shared a story before at our church of, and I'll just share this briefly. There's, I had one person in the community a long time ago in a different church, he wanted to serve in the church, and the purpose of him wanting to serve in the church was not to serve Christ. He wanted to serve in the church so that he could meet old people, so that he could sell insurance to old people. That's why he, that's why he wanted to serve, and that didn't work out for him. Uh, we didn't have him serve in the church. There's another example that comes to mind in Scripture. You can find this story in Acts 8. Um, it's the story of Simon the sorcerer. And uh, Simon the sorcerer was a uh, sorcerer, uh, and uh, he was popular. He was well-known for his sorcery. And uh, during this, this man's life, the apostles came to the town. They started sharing the gospel. People's lives were being transformed, and he saw that the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and he saw that the Holy Spirit was doing incredible things, and he wanted a piece of the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 18 of chapter 8 in Acts, it says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone in whom I lay my hands uh, may receive the Holy Spirit. He wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Peter, the apostle, he answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. You're not genuine, you're not sincere. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And so we need to ask ourselves, uh, well, really not, not just deacons, but anyone who wants to serve in the church. 
Are you really here for the right reasons? Do you have a genuine, do you believe in God and do you have a genuine love for him and do you really want to serve him? Or is it just all about you? Is it, is it using God for your own selfish purposes? Uh, before we move on to the next one, I just want to leave a positive example here. Is there someone in Scripture, there's a lot of positive examples in Scripture, but one person who comes to mind is Joseph. Uh, he was, I consider, he was someone who I consider to be sincere. He lived with honesty and with integrity. You can find his story in the latter uh, portion of the book of Genesis. And it seems, uh, if you read his story, if you know his story, he found favor with all of uh, those who ruled over him at the time. When he first got to Egypt, he found favor with a high-ranking Egyptian official named Potiphar. And Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything he had and everything he owned uh, because he saw Joseph to be a man of sincerity and honesty and integrity. When Joseph was falsely accused and thrown into prison, the prison warden trusted him with all sorts of things. Uh, Why? Because Joseph was a man who was sincere and honest, a man of integrity. And then eventually Joseph, through various events, became second in command in all of Egypt under Pharaoh. And, uh, and I believe God blessed him for his sincerity, his honesty, and his, and his integrity. And it's interesting that uh, God was able to use a man like Joseph, who was sincere, honest, and a man of integrity, which is, again, part of the reason why we're talking about character. We want to be people of character so that God can use us. And God certainly did But it's with, with Joseph. But it's, 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 uh, it's important to remember here that even genuine, sincere people like Joseph will be mistreated along the way. It, it just happens. Um, but nonetheless, we have to be sincere before the Lord and trust God to work out those circumstances as he did for Joseph's, in Joseph's life. Verse 9, the second phrase that, comes to my, that c- catches my attention here is found in verse 9. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. That phrase, clear conscience, usually when I've read that in the past, I've just kind of glossed over it and never paid attention to it. What does Paul mean by having a clear conscience? Well, context will help us here because actually if you go back into chapter 1, we see that Paul talks about, uh, he talks about having a clear conscience or a good conscience. And that helps us understand what Paul is getting at here. So I'm going to read those, those few verses to you. The first is 1 Timothy 1. Chapter five, uh, chapter one, verse five and six. Again, we're in the same book, just two chapters earlier. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That word sincere is in there. Um, anyways, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. In verse 19 and 20, holding on to a faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have hand, who, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And so uh, it seems like in the context of Paul's uh, book here, in Paul's thinking, that someone with a clear conscience is someone who is not turning to false teaching. They are not turning to false teaching. And... Uh, in contrast, they are staying committed to correct biblical beliefs. They are staying true and committed and faithful to essential biblical beliefs. There's a passage that Paul wrote in Colossians 2, which um, is both, in, sounds to me it's inspiring, but it's also, it's also humorous, depending on how you read it. It's Colossians 2, verse 8, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. 
Paul says, uh, he says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. <laughs> don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Um, don't, don't get derailed with, with, with philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Man, there are a lot of philosophies, there are a lot of uh, things going around in the world that just that are not biblical, but they just sound so appealing. They sound so right. Some of us just want them to be right, but they're not. It's so easy to get derailed. And I find when when people start um, uh, getting derailed, there's there's one of there's a lot of things that could happen, but there's there's one of two things that often happen when people start um, drifting from uh, the, the truth of God's word. And number one. This is what could happen. You read the word of God. You read the word of God and something in the word of God makes you uncomfortable and you don't like it. So the assumption is, oh, the Bible must be wrong or my interpretation of the Bible must be wrong because I don't like it. And so I'm going to twist what the Bible says to accommodate what I think the Bible should be saying. And when we do that, man, we are off to a, a bad, we're, we're headed on a, on a dangerous, dangerous path. And, you know, anybody can make this mistake. A brand-new believer can make this mistake. But you know what? Uh, very highly intelligent, educated professors in Bible college can sometimes make this mistake. Why? Because sometimes we look at Scripture, and uh, we just don't like what it says, so we just twist it to interpret what we think it should be saying. Uh, another thing that happens is, is kind of similar, is uh, we read Scripture— and, and scripture's saying this, it's obvious that it's saying this, and then we look at our culture, and the culture's saying this, and the two don't match up. And we get uncomfortable with that. And we think to ourselves, man, what we need to do as Christians, we need, to, uh, we need to look at the Bible, and it's time to call the Bible to fall in line with the culture. But the reality is, is that the very opposite thing should be happening. We should be calling ourselves and those around us who love God uh, to fall in line with Scripture. Here's the other thing that I think is very helpful for us to remember. Uh, scripture will always, at some level, be in conflict with our culture. All the time. All the time. It'll always be uncomfortable with the culture, and we have to be okay with that. Scripture is always challenging us, uh, both individually and corporately, to, to change, to be challenged, to be uh, renewed according to the, the way God sees things. Uh, Paul said this in another passage in Romans 12, verse 2. He said, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Let God transform your mind, not the culture, not your own opinion of the way things should go. Uh, so a deacon or person of character is one who stays true to, to Scripture, to the essential truths of the Christian faith. Now, I want to balance this point out a little bit here. Uh, Paul also talks about not turning to meaningless talk. There's, there's a lot of other verses where Paul is warning, uh, I think it's uh, either Timothy or Titus or both. Uh, he's warning Timothy uh, not to, I don't have the reference off the top of my head, but he's, he's warning them not to get involved in meaningless talk. And we don't know for sure what that exactly is. But I find sometimes that... Um, there are some theological topics that are just not worth talking about. They're a waste of time. 
And sometimes uh, Christians can get into a huff over theological topics that really, at, at the end of the day, don't really have any significance. I'm just going to give you um, kind of an informal way of thinking that I go through to think through whether a theological topic is even worth talking about or even worth discussing. Okay, there's a few things. Number one, if this theological topic that we really so badly want to engage in, if this theological topic has no, it makes no difference as to how I view God or how I understand God, if this theological topic has no practical implication as to how I look at others or how I treat others, and if there's no practical implication as to how I live my life or how I think about things um, according to God or others, then this theological topic really has no relevance to talk about. I mean, it's fine to take, take a few minutes to talk about it, but why super over-obsess about this theological topic if it doesn't change the way I view God, others, and it doesn't have, has no practical implication as to how I'm going to live my Christian life? I find sometimes what happens is Christians get into very heated arguments about secondary matters of faith that don't have, they, don't, they just don't matter. <laughs> In a similar way, sometimes we can get into arguments over semantics and over particular words, again, that don't really matter. There are some occasions where words, they matter big time. Perhaps when you're writing a statement of faith, uh, there are certain matters that are, certain words and phrases that are of extreme importance. On other occasions, um, there are certain words and phrases, well, whatever. Uh, it's, just, it's just semantics, and we can get to a huff over little things. Anyways, the bottom line, a person of character uh, is one who can discern between what's essential and what's not, and they stay true to the core biblical uh, truths found in Scripture. They stay, they stay true to God's word. Uh, number three, verse 10 A deacon, they must first be tested. I'm not going to talk too long on this one, but this is an important one. They must first be tested. This word could mean test, examine, interpret, discern, discover, approve, prove, or demonstrate. So it's used in a lot of different ways. But uh, anyways, uh, they, they must be tested. So this tells me, and I've kind of already said this already, um, but this tells me, this indicates that they are a higher-level servant who have served in simpler roles where they have been tested. So they may have served in some simple role, they were tested, and now they got promoted, if you will, to a, a deacon role after being tested. And so if one must be tested, it assumes that one is willing to be tested. And then it requires, then, that one is willing to be teachable. It requires then that someone then is, has a certain level of humility about them, that they are willing to accept, or they're willing to, and they're open to hear feedback. They're open to be challenged. They're, they're just humble people, open to feedback and correction and tweaking how they do things. You know, um, I, I got to say, working with someone who is teachable, I worked with a lot of people uh, in my life, and uh, I'm sure many, many people can resonate with this. Working with someone who is teachable and open to feedback and, and, and open to being challenged is such a breath of fresh air. It, 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 the, the feeling I get from that, it's kind of like you're eating your favorite ice cream on a hot summer day and everything is good. <laughs> the birds are chirping, the butterflies are flying around, everybody's happy. It is so good to work with people who are teachable and humble and willing to be 
challenged and, and redirected and all the rest. And we should all be striving towards that. And I, I want to say this. I, I would rather work with someone with average ability but uh, would be exceptional in this area in their attitude and their character than work with someone who is exceptional in what they did but they were average or less than average in this area. Maybe they, they, they felt they, um, they, they, were, they were too good to accept uh, feedback or criticism or be challenged. Be a person who is teachable. Be a person who's open to be challenged, corrected, whatever, whatever you want to say. Uh, be someone who is, is humble and is willing to be teachable, willing to be tested. The last phrase that, that jumps out at me is in, found in verse 11. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers. That phrase, malicious talkers, jumps out at me. Another translation would say they must not slander others. Same kind of similar thing. Now, I found, and I was totally surprised when I looked at the original language. Uh, usually, I look at the original language, and it's not really worth you know, commenting on in a sermon. Uh, it might just be good for me to know what's going on. But uh, this um, word surprised me. This word that is used here, to, which is translated as malicious talkers, is the word diabolos. And this means, this word is most commonly translated as the devil, as Satan. The vast majority that this word is, uh, is, is translated as, is translated as the word devil, as, as Satan. And it's very occasionally translated as malicious talkers or slanders. Just a couple times it's translated as malicious talkers or slanders. But usually the vast majority, again, is this word is translated as the devil or Satan. Uh, crazy. And I imagine this is where the word uh, diabolical comes from. Diabolos, diabolical. I'm not a language expert, but that's, I don't think that's a far stretch. So a malicious talker is one who is someone using the tongue for evil intent. On top of that, you might say it's, it's someone who is, is allowing Satan to use your tongue to tear others down without you even realizing it. Satan could be using your tongue some, somehow in some way to tear others down. Now, Paul, in this passage, in verse 11, he seems to be challenging the women in particular. There is a, another passage in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, where in a very similar way, he's telling uh, Titus to challenge the older women not to be uh, slanderous and be involved in uh, heavy drinking, not, not be heavy drinkers. And so, uh, for whatever reason, perhaps in Paul's life and Paul's ministry, he was challenging uh, the women in this area because maybe he saw that women are more prone to struggle in this area. Um, that's not to say men don't struggle in this area. I know men who are uh, malicious talkers. Uh, and so we all need to be challenged uh, in this area. We all need to be challenged in this um, area, both men and women. Now, uh, probably the, one of the worst examples of Scripture of someone who did not use their tongue well is, can be found in, in, in Job. Um, Job, if you look at Job, you look, you'll open up the first two chapters of Job, you'll see a man who had lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his possessions, and then eventually his, his health was suffering. And his wife comes up to him, he comes up to Job, and his wife didn't say, hey, Job, we can do this. Hey, Job, hang in there. Hey, Job, why don't you go to God and seek prayer, get some help? No, she comes up to Job and she says, Job, curse God, and die. 
That's brutal. <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> Curse God and die. See ya. I'm not sure exactly how what the relationship looked like after that, but that is an example of someone who's not using their tongue to build up. So anyways, man or woman, young or old, old person, young person, doesn't matter. Let's be people who are not malicious talkers. Um, I want to talk about some do's and don'ts when it comes to being or not being a malicious talker. And the first uh, area I want to talk about is the don'ts. What are some things we should not be doing as a uh, malicious, or what are some of the things we should be avoiding? Uh, I'm going to say this. Here's the don'ts list. Uh, don't, don't tear down someone's reputation behind their back or even to their face. I mean, don't do that. Um, sometimes I find uh, some people will get around. This happens in families. This happens in the church world. It happens in the business world. It doesn't matter. Sometimes what happens is people will get around in a social gathering, and they got nothing better to talk about. So what they do is they talk about so-and-so, and they do it for the purpose of entertainment or humor. They talk about someone behind their back. They make fun of them. They laugh at them. They're the butt of their jokes, and everybody has a good time at the expense of so-and-so. Don't be that person. If, if you are in that situation, you need to cut that conversation off and move on to a different topic. Here's another don't. Uh, don't gossip about people's decision-making. Uh, it's so easy to look at someone else and, you know, you know you're in a social gathering or with someone who's uh, hanging out on the street or in a family gathering or whatever, and all of a sudden you start whispering. You start whispering and start gossiping. Hey, can you believe that, that, what car they bought? Uh, can they really afford that car? Uh, why are they buying that car? Whatever. Okay, can you believe the vacation they went on? Uh, man, I, they, they don't deserve that kind of vacation or they shouldn't be spending money on that vacation. I know something about their life, so whatever. Can you believe that? Can you believe the way their children behave? Oh my goodness, if I was their parent, this is the way I would do it. So on and so forth. The list goes on forever. Blah, 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 blah. Don't be that gossiper. Don't assume the worst in others. Don't assume the worst in others. Oftentimes, uh, people make uh, odd comments, make odd decisions that might affect you. It might be perceived as something very negative, um, but always assume the best in, in others. Don't assume the worst in others. Uh, here's another don't. Don't repeat information about someone that is secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, fifthhand information, uh, and so on. You know, when you get into a, a social gathering, a, so, uh, a social setting of some kind, someone might come up, person A might come up to person B and say, hey, did you hear what Mr. or Mrs. X did? Yeah, yeah, I listen, I don't know if it's true, but if it is true, the yada, 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 let's talk for an hour, let's talk for an hour and gossip on the information that may or not even be true. That's just a recipe for disaster. Cut those conversations off. Uh, and here's another don't. Don't say stuff to get others riled up and create alliances for yourself. I see this happen in relationships. Sometimes people tear others down simply for the purpose of, so that they can manipulate relationships. They tear others down to manipulate relationships and make themselves look better and just have a monopoly in a certain social setting. I see that. Uh, don't be that person who is causing... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, I can't think of the word, but uh, dissension. Don't be that person who, who causes dissension for the purpose of manipulating relationships and making your own self look better. Uh, 
Here's another don't. Uh, don't judge. Don't judge. Why judge? It's a waste of time. It's uh, God. That's, that's, judging is God's job. Leave that job to him. Before I move on to the do's, let me just say a word of warning here. You know, I have this fancy de- device in my pocket here. It's, it's a smartphone. And uh, if I say Google, this phone might start listening to me right now. But it didn't. But it might. Anyways, uh, this, this device could potentially, I don't know how the technology world works. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. But this phone, wherever I go, is following me. And it might be recording every single word that I say uh, in the privacy of my own bedroom, in the privacy of wherever I may be, in, in, in when I'm talking to my wife, when I'm talking about, to my wife about other people. And there is a chance that one day Google could be recording everything I say, everything you say, and one day uh, somehow someone could be shouting to the world what you are saying in secret because this thing is listening to you. And if that concerns you, something else could actually concern you more. Uh, there is a God, and he's listening to everything we say. And we are going to have to give an account to him one day for everything that comes out of our mouth. That should concern you. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, if, if well, it, Let me just read what, what Solomon said. Uh, King Solomon, uh, before the internet, before Google, King Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20. He says, Do not revile the king in y- even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird in the sky may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Uh, sometimes, whatever you say, uh, malicious or not, even in the privacy of your own bedroom, will somehow make, it way, make its way to the person that you are talking about. Here's the thing. Um, controlling the tongue is not just about controlling the tongue. It's really controlling the mind and the heart. This is really a, a serious character issue. Because whatever is in your head that you think towards others, whatever is in your heart that you think towards others, will inevitably one day it's going to surface and it's going to come out of your mouth. You can't stop it. And so if you really want to control the tongue, what you really got to do is you got to do a head check and a heart check. Uh, What is my heart towards this person in my life? What is my heart towards my family, my church friends, my business friends, uh, Lord... uh, we need to stand before God and say, God, God, change my head, change my heart so that I have a loving attitude towards them so what comes out of my mouth will be one that is uplifting and and fruitful. Anyways, coming back to this whole Google is listening to everything and God is listening to everything. I want to challenge you to live with the assumption, live with the assumption that anything you say, even if you say it to yourself and no one's around, Uh, live with the assumption that anything you say, even to yourself in the privacy of your own home, has has the potential to be shared with the entire world one day. Live with that thought, and may that challenge you to to change um, how you talk about others. Here are some do's, some perhaps some positive things we can do in this area. Uh, Talk about people in an uplifting and encouraging way. Uh, Be that person who who just makes it their goal to be uplifting and encouraging. Uh, number two, give grace and the benefit of the doubt to those who may have hurt you. Again, coming back to assuming the best in others. Uh, three, be genuinely happy for others uh, when God blesses them. Uh, there's no need to be envious. There's no need to be jealous. Just be happy for people and don't gossip about what they're doing or not doing with the blessings that God has given them. Develop a heart of love and prayer for those who are struggling close to you. 
man, it's so easy to gossip about those who are uh, struggling, uh, uh, those who are close to you who are struggling. It's so easy to gossip about them because maybe it makes you feel better or whatever, but don't, don't be that person. Be a person who develops a heart of love and sympathy and care and prayer uh, to those who are struggling around you. Talk directly to those you have an issue with. Encourage others to do the same. Uh, cut, cut things off when things are getting to the, the secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand information. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. Recognize the tongue is way more powerful than you think. It's a weapon. Use this weapon for good. Use your tongue to build others up rather than tear them down. Use your tongue to encourage. Use your tongue to uplift. Use your tongue to, to heal. Use your tongue to bring hope to someone's life. And you know, when we get this stuff right, when we use your tongue for good, our, our families, our community, our churches will be blessed as a result. But the opposite is also true. When we get this wrong, our families and our communities and our churches are going to pay the price. They're going to pay a huge toll. Uh, you're going to see lots of hurt feelings, lots of broken relationships. And you know, I wonder, I wonder if this is one of, or maybe Satan's greatest uh, strategy in causing destruction and dissension in a church is somehow influencing people to use their tongue in very negative, malicious ways. Um, it's, and it's, it, maybe it is because that word is, <laughs> is used most often to describe, uh, or it's most often used as, and translated as Satan. So let's not be a malicious talker. Let's be people of character who are using our tongue for good. Okay, so why does this matter? Why does our series matter? Why does this whole conversation on character matter? Why work hard at building character? Well, listen, we are not here to just, you know, just do better so that we can look at ourselves and be more self-righteous and be so proud of how wonderful we are. That's not the point. We, we work at character so that we can be more useful to God, so that God can, and we can be more versatile, so that God can more easily use us to fulfill the mission that he's called us to, to point people to Christ, to, to make disciples of Christ Jesus. So uh, let's be people of character and let's be people, let's be the men and women who, whom God is calling us to be so that we can advance his mission in this world. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come back now. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to this world, to die on the cross for our sins, to, to rise again from the day, dead, so that whoever believes in you will be, will be saved and will be reconciled back to you. We thank you, Lord God, that your son was the perfect example of character. He used his tongue to challenge, but he also used it for good. He was sincere. He was genuine. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to put himself, um, not just second, but just be the servant of everyone. And so, Lord, help us, help us look to Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would transform us. You continually transform us and help us in all the areas that need transforming uh, to make us like, like you, Lord. And we pray that you would change anything in our minds and our hearts that are not right so that you can use us as uh, tools and utensils to do what it is you're calling us to do, which is to achieve the mission that you've called us to. So, Lord, we pray that you empower us and equip us to do your work. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.